Hello, this is Jeff Treisman. This is Matt Schmidt. And you're listening to Impolitik. Hello and welcome to our inaugural episode of Impolitik. Today we're going to discuss the looming crisis in Ukraine and what appears to be a, a potential invasion of the country by Russia. Now, Matt, can you describe for our listeners essentially the brief history and perhaps the, the situation at hand in Ukraine? Sure. You need to start this story in uh, 2014 when Ukrainians took to the streets in what was called the Revolution of Dignity or the Maidan Revolution. And what happened there is that a, uh, a Russian-leaning president of Ukraine reneged on a deal to move Ukraine towards the West economically and culturally and closer to the EU in terms of allowing Ukrainian citizens uh, access to the EU with tourist visas. When he reneged on this deal, uh, hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets. Eventually, this turned into um, a, a sit-in that happened for months in the cold of November and December and January. And in February, right about now, uh, the president of Ukraine had his special forces fire on the troops in Maidan Square, uh, on, the, on the citizens in Maidan Square, uh, killing over 100. What happened after that was uh, a series of attacks on the president's residence, uh, on government buildings, and eventually the president fled to Russia. Uh, a few days later, Russia declared that its uh, ethnic Russians in the far east of Ukraine, in the Donbass region, were coming under attack from Ukrainians. Uh, essentially, there was a kind of genocide going on, and they supported a separatist movement, uh, which was in fact created by Russia, and then supported them with troops uh, and invaded. Uh, over the course of a few years, what happened is, is there was uh, an airliner that was shot down, killing several hundred people that was shot down uh, with Russian anti-aircraft equipment. And a long war has been simmering there for eight years. Uh, over that time, the Ukrainian military has gotten a lot better than it was in 2014. And this is where we're at today with about today, about 200,000 uh, Russian troops ringing Ukraine. Some of those troops are in Belarus, a neighboring country to the north. North, And, um, you know, we sit here now uh, on the brink of war. Now, I understand, Matt, that you actually spoke with a colleague who's essentially out in the front lines in Ukraine, uh, in Kiev. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your uh, discussion and conversation with him? Sure. I spoke with Volodymyr Runitz. He is a major uh, uh, TV personality on ICTV in, uh, in Kiev, and he spent many years on the front lines uh, in, in what they call the line of contact out east uh, before uh, moving into his, uh, his current gig uh, as a host and anchor with ICTV. Uh, he's one of the most knowledgeable people in Ukraine on the conditions on the ground, uh, and he's actually uh, from that region himself. Fantastic. Let's go ahead and turn to that interview now. I'm uh, Volodymyr Runitz. I'm a special correspondent with uh, one of the biggest TV outlets in Ukraine called ICTV. Uh, everybody is talking, uh, you know, we've talked before and, and you've been very uh, blasé uh, about the war. Yeah, you, you said, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, you know, getting my air conditioner fixed, but I'm also, you know, cleaning my pistol. 
Why are you not worried? Well, because uh, my country uh, has been at war for eight years now. Back in 2014, in February, Russia annexed the Crimean Peninsula, uh, kicked off a war in Donbas. Uh, over 14,000 people died since then. I do realize that it's nowhere near compared to Syria, but still, uh, we have been at war with Russia, and it's not that it's something new. It might move to Kiev or Odessa or both, or east, west, whatever. Every family I know have lost someone at war with Russia. So what else can we do? It doesn't mean that I have to stop washing or brushing my teeth or going to work or cleaning my house or, I don't know, talking to, to the people I love and respect. I hear you. Life, life hasn't stopped. Do, do other people that you know feel the same way? Well, there's a lot. As I know, there are a lot of people who decided to leave at least Kiev thus far. They rent, they're renting uh, apartments and houses uh, westwards somewhere in near Lviv, Ivano-Frankivsk, which is uh, a border area with Poland uh, and Slovakia and Hungary. But other than the, I, I wouldn't say that it's the, the majority of the population of Ukraine. Is there a generational divide? Do you see that uh, older generations are the ones that are leaving or the, the ones that came after yours? I, I think of your guys as sort of the, the Maidan generation, right? The revolution generation. But I wonder, I wonder about the younger kids, the youth. Uh, basically, uh, it's the young, it's the, the middle-aged that are trying to escape from Kiev uh, specifically. Uh, these, are, these are the people who have things to lose. I mean, the younger ones, they, um, they are not so worried about anything. The older ones, they'll try and stick to what they have, keep their houses warm and clean and you know safe because uh, they are afraid of looting. If they leave, they are afraid that their dwellings might be looted by someone which happened before and happens in any war. So hard to say, but I would say that basically it's like middle-aged people are trying to, to go. I wanna go back to the, the younger generation for a second. Do you think that, that they're committed and, and willing to fight in the same way that your generation is or? Um. On the 11th of February, uh, it was my birthday, and obviously I was having a lot of uh, phone calls, and uh, uh, a lot of people called me and wished me a happy birthday. And I, I had this uh, very early uh, morning phone call from one of the officers of the Ukrainian army saying, you know what I'm scared of? Uh, I'm scared of dying uh, on a train to the front lines in the first place. I, I would prefer dying in a fight. So the 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 mood in the army is they they know what they are doing. They have been doing it for a while. So uh, there's obviously no panic there. And it's it was a very young man calling me that I, I know his uh, his voice is representative because a lot of people of his age think the same way. You think that philosophically the people of Ukraine are now fully committed to the idea of a democratic government, uh, e even with corruption and everything else that might, um, you yeah. know, might dissuade them. For, for sure. And uh, on the good side of this uh, entire hysteria and, you know, the threat 
handing uh, over Ukraine. Uh, there's a, a good thing that basically no one is talking about, but the part of the population that didn't believe that Putin could attack, now they do. So the so-called pro-Russian uh, part of the population shrank, shrank dramatically. Why do you think Putin wants Ukraine? Putin wants the Soviet Union back home. Oh, he doesn't you want really, Ukraine. Really believe as that in, he's a communist. He's not a communist. He's an imperialist uh, in the worst meaning of the word. Uh, he, if you, if you, if you listen to the rhetorics uh, in the Russian television, uh, they would uh, always use Ukrainian words as something. Uh, in like uh, in a bad meaning, they would twist Ukrainian language, they would twist Belarusian language, they would twist like I don't know the Estonian or Latvian or Lithuanian language, specifically to remind everyone living there that things were not like that in the spec in the Soviet Union. So if you if you follow the Russian uh, information flow, uh, you would realize that. Basically, they miss it. They miss the big power. That's interesting. But Putin says all the time, right? He says, "Well, I'm worried. What if uh, you know NATO comes into Ukraine? Uh, what if there are missiles in Ukraine?" And my thought has always been, "What? Right? The Baltics are closer to Moscow than Kharkiv is, and and modern war would suggest that that Ukraine doesn't matter in terms of its its you know geographic position." So why well, does he true. say it? it's it's not but he he needs he needs an official pretext it's not about nato it's not about uh, eu ambitions uh, of uh, the ukrainian government it's just about collecting the the land uh and feeling like a, a <coughs> czar uh i mean uh, for how many years has he has he been in power he he never wants 20, to 22 23 now yeah I mean, who counts? It doesn't matter now. Yeah, yeah. And he will, and he will stay again. Say, can we call it re-elected? Uh, I don't think so. So it's, I don't think it's, it has anything to do with NATO ambitions or EU ambitions of Ukraine. Do you think that there's a sense with him uh, that he has sort of a, a grand historical purpose for Russia? that it's to protect certain kinds of values that are fundamentally not European, for instance, uh, you know, that he would be opposed to uh, to gay rights um, or to forms of free speech or democracy because, I don't know, they're not Slavic or they're not Russian or they're not Eurasian, um, and that that well, plays into this? I, I really love the, the word uh, values because there's value and there's a value. So Putin's values is money. Always. Uh, and why I don't think he's going to attack like big style this time, because it's too expensive. He can't afford, he, he really can't afford it. I don't think he's going to uh, make it economically. Uh, and let me, all let his, me clarify that. Let me clarify that for the listeners here, because Putin is understood by many people to be the richest man in the world, potentially two hundred plus billion dollars, right? At least close to uh, to Elon Musk. But that's his own assets. That's his absolute own assets. He's he's not going to share it with with the population of his own country. But his pension uh, his pension funds they blew up in two thousand fourteen when first sanctions round of sanctions was imposed. Uh, 
the war did cost him a lot now because the russia the russians did pay a lot of money out of their own pockets not the government they are rich people they have property in london their children do not live in russia they they live elsewhere they study in, uh, in the united states in the united kingdom in australia uh netherlands putin's daughters live in netherlands so it's not about his own money he is the richest man in the world because russia is one of the poorest countries in the world and i mean, I mean compare the economies the, the united states economy and the russian economy so you think that the sanctions are a kind of effective deterrent for him i do think that it's necessary but it's not enough what about the russian people uh, are they uh, wildly in favor of this war against ukraine or not i can't imagine it right my my thing is always hey ukrainians make up a big ethnic minority in russia and most russians know uh, you know a relative or a friend who lives in ukraine we're now under the you know the barrel of a russian gun but i i'm not you tell me what you know about their sense i watched uh, a few like you know uh vox populi things uh on on uh, independent russian uh, outlets like journalists were just out in the streets interviewing regular people and the majority of the people answered back basically answering the questions were saying no we don't want any war with ukraine unless ukraine invades russia which is we we do realize that it's not realistic do you think that that matters to putin what his people think no never did will never do you do. think do you think it could matter if it if it came to street but, protests or do you think it would come to street protests but will it come to street protests what they are saying we don't need a maidan in uh, in moscow petersburg we don't need any coup d'etat he, he his rhetoric is uh, when he's talking to his people is like if you want freedom freedom is what that's going to harm you look at ukraine what it did to them they have a war but he forgets to mention that that's the war he he started are you cynical about the west response its true commitment to ukraine i mean uh i am very cynical because what the ukrainian people would like to to hear from the west is that we're not going to send you some uh, outdated hand grenades or missile systems and fight on your own it's the signal they would want to hear is that we are united and in case uh, putin attacks it's like a big fist that's going to hit back but that's something ukrainians haven't heard so far how far do you think putin will go to uh, to take ukrainian territory do you think he would go as far as kiev do you think he would go farther what what do you think what's your sense of the, the you know the two most likely scenarios Obviously he doesn't need territories where he's not going to get any support because there's going to be like partisan activities. Uh fair enough the Russians won't appreciate that. Uh if I were Putin I would uh I would probably take over uh, Odessa, Nikolaev, Kherson, uh freeing the way to Crimea and and uh, getting access to fresh water supply. Because if, if he needs if he needs Crimea for his military purposes, that's where he can sort of uh, show that he's uh, he has some military potential against, say, Turkey there in, in the Black Sea. 
probably he'll need the east of the of, of Ukraine. And obviously he could probably make this corridor from from uh, the south to east because what he's always been talking about is southeast of Ukraine. Why would he need um, you know advantage against Turkey simply because Turkey is in NATO? Number one, Turkey is in NATO. Number two, Turkey is controlling the, the Bosphorus Strait. What do you think is the is the most important tactical skill that the Ukrainian army possesses? Is it its ability to stop Russia's tanks, to uh, winnow its air superiority, to defeat it, uh, you know, in ground combat? The is most valuable power that you military in the uh, the most valuable military power that Ukraine has now is not military, it's the population. They will not accept uh, the Russians as their government, as their uh, leaders, as their power. The Ukrainian population will resist. Like Not everyone, of course, because it's natural that people get scared, people, uh, <coughs> some people will obey, but there are a lot, a huge amount of people who will not. I, I do I do believe that this uh, possibility of this massive resistance is also a factor that so far prevented Putin from attacking Ukraine. So the Ukrainian strategy might be called an Afghanistan strategy. It, it could, yeah, true. And and um, are volunteers, are ordinary people, are they out with with weapons? Have they been sort of collecting them? What what is the status of the civilian revolt? What I do know for sure uh, is that the, you can hardly buy anything in a in a um, uh, weapon store. They are just sweeping everything out. Everyone is buying weapons right now these days: rifles, uh, guns, pistol guns, whatever they can afford and uh, uh, get a license for. They take a lot of people and purchase uh, purchased guns. Is it true that most men, at least, uh, are veterans uh, of you know the Soviet military or something else? How, you know, practiced or formally trained are people? Do you think? Well, with all the territorial defense units, it's it's very popular now to join one of those, and they <clears throat> they go training every weekend instead of just staying in bed or watching TV or going to a restaurant with their wives. They go to uh, shooting ranges and uh, and train. So military drills is like normal. Uh, sometimes, because I live uh, outside the city, uh, I can hear firearms going on because of the trainings. Do you think that uh, the Russian military will try to take Kyiv or at least surround it and hold it hostage? I think that the Russian military will definitely try to destroy as much as they can if they do invade, but I don't think the, they, they will want to keep it. They don't need it. But what about what about Kyiv? Do you think that that they will go there? I think that if 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 it comes to it, they will attack for sure. But I don't think they, they're gonna they're gonna keep it for a long time. They don't need it. The city itself. Is there anything else that you'd like uh, to say uh, that I, I've missed that you think is really important for people here in the United States to understand um, that we've just been missing in our our coverage? So what I'm what I was going to say, what I would like to say to the 
uh, international audience is that uh, what matters now is unity. It's it's the biggest value and the biggest and the hardest thing to do to demonstrate unity because we don't see unity. Uh, mm, I mean between the Western partners of Ukraine, I mean, there's France with their own interests and the coming in actions. There's Germany with their own interests and will for gas and money. Uh, there's always uh, the United Kingdom that just stepped out of the EU and they have their own interests uh, settling as the, one of the leaders uh, on the continent. And we have the United States. Uh, who are trying, I think they're trying to still to prove that they are a superpower. Uh, and if there's no unity, nothing's, nothing's good, nothing good is going to happen. And obviously no one wants a big war. No one wants World War III. So what they have to do is, I mean, they have to demonstrate power and unity because demonstrating power and unity is a lot more powerful than actually striking with power. Volva, thank you very much for taking the time uh, to talk with me. And I wish you good luck uh, in your own very important work and, uh, and stay safe. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Now, Matt, that was a really fascinating uh, interview uh, you had with Vovo. Uh, now, I do have a, a couple of questions or at least some observations um, that I, I think it's worthwhile that we discuss. Uh, first and foremost, what really strikes me is his estimation that this looming war is largely driven by Putin himself as an individual. Now, this flies in the face or contradicts neorealism uh, and principles that it's actually balances of material power that drive war. So in other words, the, the counter argument would be that it's not necessarily Putin uh, that's leading or driving the war, but it's this increasing encroachment of Western and NATO, uh, in particular military uh, power on Russia's borders. How would you respond uh, to that, that essentially the argument that I'm making, if you will? First of all, for our listeners out there, I'd like to issue a nerd alert, nerd alert, <clears throat> because I'm not a realist. I'm a constructivist, constructivist, constructivist. Uh, and that means that what I believe in is that uh, threats are what states make of them, or threats are what individuals who lead states make of them. In this case, I think that's what Volvo and I would be arguing here is that if you look at the argument that Putin wants you to believe that this is about the threat that, uh, you know, uh, uh, Ukraine might join NATO and then NATO puts weapons in Ukraine, well, I think it's complete bollocks. Why? Because it misunderstands modern war. Nobody's going to drive tanks from eastern Ukraine to Moscow. The missile times flying out of, uh, you know, out of Ukraine are not meaningfully different than the missile times flying out of, here it comes, already existing NATO countries, such as Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia in the Baltics, who are actually closer to Moscow and other strategic aspects. So I believe basically that this is a kind of canard. The question is, is should Putin know that? I think yes. Um, uh, in which case, why doesn't he believe it? So this is the part that Volvo and I agree on, which is that he sees the real threat in Ukraine, not as missiles, um, not as NATO in terms of its hardware and its, and its personnel there, 
But as uh, Ukraine is a country that that has committed to European values, that is committed to democracy, a society that, as he's seeing right now, is absolutely committed to holding together and fighting an insurgency against great odds because it does not believe in the value structure right, of Vladimir Putin's world, Vladimir Putin's government. You know, I, I would certainly concede uh, that modern warfare has has certainly evolved, uh, and as you alluded to, the the strike times from you know, Western Europe uh, negate in many respects the strategic importance of Ukraine. Uh, that said, I, I still push back just a little bit in the sense that modern warfare is still, I would argue, driven by this zero sum calculation. And so, in other words, any advantage that the West gains over Russia is still going to alter the calculus of Russia as a state, regardless of who's in power, regardless if it's Putin or any other leader at its helm. Uh, again, I respectfully disagree, but that's why we're here on a podcast together and the tension is good for the listeners. Uh, you know, what, what has to happen here is you have to decide what your threat is that you're balancing again against. And so if you have a future leader of Moscow, who doesn't believe that a democratic Ukraine is a threat, then you don't get what, you, what you're seeing today, right? This, is a, this whole war is the result of the failure of a democratic transition in post-Soviet Russia. So, you know, weapons matter, but it also matters to understand that NATO has no interest in moving into, into Russia, right? Short of Armageddon and probably not even then. The, the simple argument here is, you know, Canada has a pretty kick at bleep it, uh, military, but the United States doesn't doesn't you know deploy against it, right? Canada could take Chicago if it wanted to, but we don't worry about it because we share a value structure and we trust that it is the value structure that we share that keeps us from attacking each other. And that's the issue I believe in Ukraine. It's moving towards democratic values, and it would become the launching pad for a kind of Maidan revolution in the streets of Moscow, like you saw in Kyiv in 2014. You know, I, I think that's a very interesting point that you make. Uh, and in fact, it's an argument that I make in my class with my students. Uh, and that's from the perspective of neorealism, Canada should actually be considered the United States' greatest security threat. Obviously, it's not for the reasons you just cited. Uh, but I think, you know, there's this kind of historical component that we can unpack a little bit more here. Uh, and that's historically, the Eastern Front has uh, been extremely important in terms of military strategy and global conflicts. It sounds, however, that the argument that he's making uh, is that that the Eastern Front has lost its degree of prominence and importance. Uh, is that a correct assessment? Uh, uh, of what he's arguing? Right. If you're talking about what happens uh, should shooting start, the, uh, the the general who's leading this um, assault is a guy by the name of uh, Valery Gerasimov. And if you look at what he wrote uh, in a few speeches and in his war college work, he essentially is adopting a theory of warfare that is designed to promote social chaos. It's designed to really, in his words, sort of hack a society using different means, using information warfare, which I think we're all familiar with with Russia, using you know cyber attacks, uh, you know, using all sorts of different ways to get in there and crack a society up in the deepest way possible, not just with the military. And the military's job is to come in and bring fear and pain. 
which is why you might look at those troops in the north in Belarus and you would see them uh, perhaps coming down. I think they'd have to hit a city called Zhytomyr, which the uh, where the uh, rapid reaction airborne troops are for Kiev. They would have to take those out first and then they would be on a straight shot on a you know, four lane highway into Kiev. But the idea is that they took Zhytomyr and then sat there, they would threaten Kiev. Uh, or if you dropped a few artillery shells into Kiev, you would create a lot of fear and you would put pressure on the government um, to, uh, you know, to, to back off, right, to sue for peace. Um, but it would also be checking against its population and the population's willingness to continue in some kind of insurgency. Um, and, and the Russian plan overall is to do that all around the country simultaneously. Also of a special importance is what you would see in, in Crimea. Um, also of importance is the blockage of ports in the Sea of Azov and elsewhere where Ukrainian corn and wheat come out, which is a huge source of revenue for the country and might drive up prices here, of, you know, bread and meat because corn is often used as, uh, as food for cattle. Um, and so the idea is to just bring in all of these lever points where you can bring up the pain at the same time that you're exploiting basically the information warfare and trying to convince the Ukrainian population to stop um, the insurgency because the reverse of this is that it's the insurgency that's like a sponge that will suck in Russian forces and, and put out body bags, you know, and ship them back to the steps of the Kremlin and try to create pain and influence uh, back in that direction. But it's a sponge. So that you're going to have to let Russian forces come all the way in to do it. And it's at that point that you have Gerasimov's plan to be able to ratchet up the pain and to convince the population to put down arms. And then on the other side, Ukraine's plan to, to keep people fighting at great disadvantage to themselves. And that's, I think, where, um, you know, where you're going to see this thing play out if, unfortunately, the shooting does start. You know, I, I think that's a very important point that, uh, that you make is that I think the American public and the media is very much transfixed by the the economic impact of war with respect to uh, gas prices or natural gas and oil. It, but agricultural commodities, I think, are being overlooked, uh, especially, as you said, uh, wheat and corn prices, uh, that economic component uh, will be uh, exasperated by uh, the potential for war. But I, I want to go back to the point you were making with respect to military strategy and a potential for insurgency. Uh, it, it seems to me that Ukrainians are not happy with the West, NATO in particular, with respect to keeping its promises, uh, with respect to coming to the Active aid and defense of the Ukraine. How should we examine that? How would you interpret that perspective? Uvova has always been cynical, and I think most Ukrainians I've met over the years and the students um, that I've taken to Ukraine have, have understood this, that, that Ukrainians understand they need the West and they need the promise of NATO, uh, but they know that NATO may never come or that if it comes, it may come very late. Um, and so they're, they're, you know, as, as you would put it, they're, they're realists, right, in this sense. Uh, but what we saw was Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, was just at the uh, Munich Security Conference, and he called out the West specifically, and he said, give me a timeline. Don't give me words or speeches. Tell me what we have to do, put it on a timeline for ascension into the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And I thought that was brilliant of him, because he's now using the pressure that Russia is putting on him. He's transferring that pressure to try to put it on the West to say, give me something that I can sink my teeth into. And he, he even said, you know, Russia's been telling us all the time, we can't trust you. We can't trust the West, right? They're never going to let you into NATO. 
And so he stands up and he says, I'm calling your bluff. Are you going to let me into NATO or not? And I don't think he cares if it's in the next two years or the next 20 years. He just wants a much sharper statement with some concrete, you know, uh, uh, tick marks on the timeline um, for Ukraine. And then that is something I think that's actually quite important for his population to hear in order to, you know, to keep them out there under really bad conditions again, should a shooting war start. Matt, let me ask one more question. I think this one might be a bit more provocative uh, in the sense that if we look at the ethno-linguistic breakdown of Ukraine, we can see that you know, Russian speakers are they're in Crimea. They're primarily in the east. And these are in territories that are uh, already essentially controlled either by separatists or indirectly or directly by Russia itself. Is it possible uh, that, you know, the, the leadership in uh, Kiev and, and even the West will uh, use those territories potentially as bargaining chips and say, you know, you can keep these pieces of territory uh, in exchange of, you know, some sort of negotiated settlement of uh, avoiding this crisis and a full on military invasion? I mean, obviously a very provocative, you know, assertion, but uh, is that that a possibility of uh, negotiating our way out of this crisis? Jeff, I am shocked that a realist like yourself would recommend violating sovereignty. Um, no, absolutely not. First of all, that would be like saying that uh, Spanish-speaking Americans uh, would, you know, would, would engage in some kind of population exchange, right, with, with Mexico, and that would be abhorrent from a moral standpoint. Uh, it's essentially ethnic cleansing, right? Uh, of a sort, right? Moving these, moving these different populations around. Um, there's also a misunderstanding about the linguistic structure. Most of, and I mean by most, I mean the vast majority of the troops that are fighting on the front line in the East right now are Russian-speaking Ukrainians. That is, they're ethnic Russians. Um, secondly, Ukraine is a country that is largely bilingual. And the question is, is your first language Russian and your second language Ukrainian or vice versa? So it's a little bit disingenuous to talk about Russian speakers versus Ukrainian speakers. Uh, it's not it's not that way. And the national identity in the last eight years uh, has grown so strong that uh, the city I was deployed to with the OSCE in the in the 2014 presidential elections has lost its Russian name uh, and now only retains its Ukrainian name. And it is almost an entirely Russian speaking city. It's the largest big city closest to the Donbass, Dnipro. Um, and so, you know, the, the nationalism in Ukraine has really gotten stronger. In essence, uh, Putin has created modern Ukraine. He's created this identity uh, by forcing this war over the last eight years. Well, thank you very much for your analysis, Matt. Uh, this is obviously a very uh, complex uh, developing crisis that really overlaps so many different issue areas of national security, ranging from conventional balances of military power and asymmetric and guerrilla warfare and economics. But as you alluded to, uh, these kind of ethno-linguistic and identity issues as well. So we'll have to watch uh, with the rest of the world as, as events continue to unfold and just hope for a peaceful resolution and outcome. My pleasure. We'll see everyone again on the next edition of Impolitics.